0: Jones, Australia's leading voice. Good evening. Thank you for watching ADH TV. Now tell your friends, I say this all the time, but tell your friends to stream ADH TV on their television. They just go to their Apple TV App Store or Google Play Store and search ADH. It's free to watch or they can listen to any of the episodes on podcast. And to everyone, to all of you, I say search Alan Jones wherever you listen to your podcast and you can start listening. Tonight I'll speak to Dr. Kevin Donnelly, he's a senior fellow at the P.M. Glynn Institute at the Australian Catholic University. His areas of expertise are in education and in particular, the significance and value of Western civilization, the ongoing debt owed to Judeo-Christianity and the impact of critical theory and post-modernism on Western societies. Now, that is a mouthful, but we'll keep it simple. Basically, Kevin Donnelly bells the cat on the woke rubbish that's taught in our classrooms. Now remember, this left-wing indoctrination begins in the education system and continues through life. We speak about this often with Mark Latham. Students are more interested in wagging school to create a misspelt placard and protest about climate action than they are in learning and subsequently contributing to society. It is a mess. Dr Donnelly will also speak about his latest book, which he edited, titled Christianity Matters. It's got a list of fine contributors, including John Anderson, whom you saw on my show the other week, Cardinal George Pell and others. Being a Tuesday, we will cross to Peggy Grandi, our US correspondent in Washington. This Joe Biden visit to the Middle East, his first since becoming president, was a hideous mess. Prior to the visit, his team made a huge song and dance about not shaking hands. It lasted for one day. Then after that, Biden was seen shaking hands, with many. He then spoke at Israel's Ben-Gurion airport and said that people should keep alive quote, the honour of the Holocaust. Before quickly correcting himself, he meant to say horror. Joe Biden is a spent force, if ever he was a force. I've been saying it for months and months. His whole life has been dedicated to being part of the political establishment in Washington. Inflation in America reached 9.1% in June, a 41-year high. And Biden has no clue about what to do about it. He also has no clue about the frightening level of crime in America. I'll talk to Peggy about that. But where isn't Biden weak? He's weak on Russia, weak on China's expansionism, weak on the radical left voices in the Democratic Party. His vice president is weak. His economic musings are weak. He may be the weakest American president ever, I met Jimmy Carter in the Oval Office, so that says something. I'll also look tonight at the damage done to people's lives by the coronavirus fines and how they can be challenged. I've got a good story about Boris Johnson and not so good story about Scott Morrison. And again, Labour's energy policy. I'm saying tonight it's like walking from a well-lit room into a dark night. Now, remember, you can have your say Tell me what you think. Email me, Jones at adh.tv, Jones at adh.tv. Last night when I spoke to the talented South Australian Senator Alex Antich, Senator Antich made the point that during the COVID period, as you all know, the health bureaucracies were in the ascendant to the extent that the trust that many Australians have in their institutions is now at an all-time low through the relentless incursions of into our lives and liberty. Senator Antich made the unarguable point that many of these incursions were cruel and unnecessary and failed to address the concerns of Australians who valued what he called the fast evaporating tenet of freedom of choice. Remember, suddenly we had imposed upon us QR codes, social distancing, border restrictions, and basically we weren't even allowed to accept the judgment of our own doctor. Bureaucrats, hardly faceless, so-called chief medical officers with limited qualifications, controlled our lives. Governments sued them on. All of this cost livelihoods, devastated families, undermined public trust in government, and rightly undermined trust in the medical establishment. The dictates rightly provoked legitimate anger towards government and government bureaucrats and the medical know-alls. Now, remember, like most of these experts, whether they be from the Reserve Bank or the Energy Mafia or the Health Mafia, they were wrong. Be vaccinated and you'll be safe. Vaccination's the answer. Yet here today, vaccinated people are in hospital, victims again of coronavirus. Well, it was inevitable that some individual would have the courage to take the system on. Just it was inevitable that the system would then buckle. I noted an interesting piece today by a lecturer at the Sydney Law School, Jason Chin. Now, a disturbing metaphor of the problem. He relates how he was sitting alone in Redfern Park in Sydney, preparing to teach a law lecture. The police told him he had, had to be actively exercising to be there. He wrote, and I quote, "...that experience, however, clarified for me just how grossly imbalanced the system is. I had every resource one could ask for, legal training, advice, time and money, but the process was still dangerous and unnecessary." He writes, my experience resembled that of many others who were illegally ticketed. I was reading alone in the park, less than a kilometre from home. I looked up to see two police officers hovering over me, accusing me of breaking the law for not actively exercising. They were also intimidating, threatening to arrest me when I asked if I could start exercising now that I knew what the law was, unquote. No luck. Mr Chin continues, quote, I used the Revenue New South Wales portal to challenge my ticket. The fine was clearly mistaken, so I thought that would be the end of it. It wasn't. Revenue's response stated that I was in the park with no reasonable excuse, which contradicted the public health order in force, defining reasonable excuse as exercise or recreation, unquote. He writes, it doesn't take a legal background to see that or outdoor recreation has no meaning, if it doesn't mean something other than exercise. So he says, I challenged the ticket in court. Two months later, Mr Chin hadn't heard anything from the prosecution. So he called the court and they'd heard nothing. So he called the general police line and was eventually connected with the officer who had issued the ticket and had harassed him. Mr Chin explained what he was seeking and to his surprise, the officer said, "Mate." I gave out a lot of tickets then. Well, Mr Chin emailed the policeman who issued the public health order on the day he was fined, to which he received a reply that the ticket had been withdrawn. The system had failed at every level. As Mr Chin says, shockingly imbalanced against accused people without means. Well, why am I saying this? Well, not by coincidence one of the plaintiffs in a New South Wales Supreme Court case has had his $1,000 fine withdrawn. 30-year-old Rowan Pank sued the New South Wales Police Commissioner and the Commissioner of Fines Administration after they refused to cancel a fine that he was given for sitting in a park in August 2021 whilst Sydney was in lockdown. Again, within a kilometre of his home, the police approached him and said the fine was given because he was not actively exercising. He sought two reviews of the fine, both were rejected. But shortly after the court case was filed and served last Thursday, the fine was withdrawn. No reasons were given. There are 45,000 more unpaid fines out there. Clearly a significant number of them may be invalid. The penalty notices in many cases don't provide enough detail as requested under the Fines Act. The lack of detail makes it difficult to challenge the fines in court because it doesn't point to a specific offence. The reality is that the validity of COVID-19 fines issued across New South Wales must now be called into question, and millions of dollars' worth of penalty notices issued during lockdowns could be invalidated. Now, remember, many of these fines were issued to people in lower socioeconomic areas. In other words, tackle the low-hanging fruit, eh? and also First Nations people. Isn't this precisely what Senator Antich was saying last night about the relentless incursions into the lives and liberty of people during coronavirus? There is a new government in Australia. It had better understand that the trust Australians once had in government institutions is at an all time low. And the government of New South Wales had better understand that if it continues this assault on the lives and liberties of ordinary residents, then its hold on government will be short-lived. If you received a fine or a penalty notice and paid it, check with your lawyer. It most probably didn't provide the detail as required under the Fines Act. Bureaucracy buckled in the case of Mr Chin. Don't imagine it won't buckle for you as well. Look, this is an issue which must be addressed because it commands significant interest, albeit concern amongst the majority of Australians. According to the 2021 census, the number of Australians who are not religious has further increased. In 1971, 87% of Australians identified as religious and overwhelmingly as Christian. Now it's 54%. What is more, only five years ago, 52% of Australians identified as Christian, and that number is now sitting at 44%, which if the figures are to be believed, represents an almost 20% decline in Christian belief in just five years. Now, there are some fundamental questions to be asked. If there has been such a decline, why? Or does the church have itself to blame for a decline in adherence? One point that's made is that a majority of teachers at Catholic schools are not regular adherents and therefore would have no interest in supporting parents with the gift of faith to their children. Indeed, some actively question fundamental church teachings rather than giving students the intellectual rigour to defend them. And of course, it goes without saying that many of these same teachers are on board with the climate cult and any other woke ideology that comes along. So how do you address that trend? What is the significance of the Robert Menzies initiative to fund non-government schools? Would Christian schools be in a much stronger position to take on governments imposing radical Marxist social policy if their establishments were not so dependent on government funding. As one academic, Dr Rocco Loyacono, a senior lecturer at the Curtin University Law School, rightly argues, quote, if you're going to take the devil's money, you are sooner or later going to have to dance to his tune. And why would you bite the hand that feeds you, unquote? Well, Dr Kevin Donnelly is an Australian educator, author and commentator, a senior fellow at the Australian Catholic University's P.M. Glynn Institute. In 2014, he co-authored a review of the Australian National Curriculum. He recently argued, quoting Sir Roger Scruton, who was an outstanding English philosopher and writer specialising in aesthetics and political philosophy, and I quote, Western societies have to regain confidence in the spiritual inheritance on which they ultimately rest, unquote. Dr Donnelly is the editor of an outstanding recent publication, Christianity Matters. There it is on your screens. In These Troubled Times. Dr Donnelly joins me. Kevin, thank you for your time. To the census, how do you explain that Australians who identify as Christians now represent only 44% of the respondents to the census, which is a massive decline in five years? It's a very difficult question to uh,
1: answer, Alan, and thank you very much for having me on the show. You're welcome. I mean, one reason must be the, the vicious attack on, on Cardinal Pell and the whole uh, left wing agenda about demonising Christianity, about attacking Christianity. Now, everyone admits the issue of pedophilia was, was a real issue. But when you look at the way the me- media handled that, especially the ABC, they went overboard to attack Cardinal Pell Christianity and I think that's had an effect on people. Mm. So people start can't to think, not well, have. if mm. you mention Christianity,
0: then they immediately think yeah, of that. It can't not have it. Just before we go any further on this issue, you were co-author of a revised education curriculum. You must feel that your work was in vain.
1: It was, and that's a second uh issue, Alan, in terms of Christianity and religion, because when we looked at the National Curriculum 2014, we reviewed it, there were hundreds and hundreds of references to Indigenous culture, history, spirituality in all the subjects from PrEP to Year 10, but there were probably four or five to Christianity. So really what's happened is it's been airbrushed out of the curriculum. Yes, that's And true. for years
0: now, and you know better than I do, yes. the cultural left has taken control. Yes, absolutely. What do you just say? That's so true. And we've got to fight out and fight against that rather than give in to it. What do you say to Dr Kono's view that because governments fund in part non-government schools and are therefore dependent on government funding, they're less likely to argue against the same governments if not imposing radical Marxist social policy, at least failing to do anything about them?
1: That, that could be an issue, but it does depend on who is in charge, if you like, on yeah. who's running the Catholic schools. I mean, I got to know Stephen Elder very well in Melbourne and the, the latest uh, director of uh, Catholic education. They're very strong on ensuring that Catholic schools actually follow the faith. Part of the problem, as you'd appreciate, is a lot of teachers, a lot if not all of them, have gone through universities where teacher training is, again, all about secular, cultural, uh, leftism, all about Marxism, Mm. peace studies, climate. Climate's a new religion. Mm. So, again, it's very difficult to find teachers Mm. who are of the faith. But
0: but given given that conservative governments in this country, you'd expect, would fight against all of that, They virtually have been silent about it. You've argued that Christianity is far from dead. Following the census, there are all sorts of headlines, which you alluded to, abandoning God, Christianity plummets as non-religion surges in the census. Another one, losing our religion as Christianity plummets. And another one, Australia has become strikingly more godless over the last decade, (laughs) unquote. Is religion in its death throes, Kevin? A bit like
1: mark twain and you, yes. you know the quote very yes. well that the rumors about my death are a little bit premature i mean the interesting thing here is globally christianity is on the increase if you believe it especially in places like china where more and more chinese people are looking for an alternative to that totalitarian regime in in africa in south america it's true in Europe and Australia, it's on the decline. It's a persecuted and there are, religion. There are reasons for a that.
0: Persecuted religion.
1: Well, it is, and uh, there are reports. Uh, if you look globally, Christianity is one of the most uh, oppressed religions in the world. But again, the media won't talk about that. The media never acknowledges that Christianity, Christians, there are martyrs every week in uh, places like uh, uh, China in Iran, in even Egypt, where the cops are regularly oppressed and victimised. But so even, religion is on the increase globally, yes, but not But, in but the even,
0: even if those census figures are right, and if it's true that just under 44% uh, have confirmed via the form that they are still Christian, that still demonstrates, does it not, that religion is a powerful and potent force in Australia. But how does that force manifest itself, Dr Donnelly?
1: You mentioned the book, uh, there are a number of chapters in there, and I often refer to the arrival of the First Fleet. Two of the books that came with the First Fleet are the King James Bible, as you know, and Blackstone's Laws of England. Now, the Bible underpins our political, our legal system, the New Testament. Uh, You only have to read the New Testament to understand concepts like the inherent dignity of the person. We're all made in God's image. Ideas about social justice, about committing to the common good, about uh, even the Ten Commandments, uh, morality, ethics, it all underpins our political and legal Mm. system. Mm. And that's why our parliaments begin with the Lord's Prayer Mm. and the preamble to the Constitution calls on almighty God. Now, again, the left want to get rid of that, but history tells us it's there. Mm. And it always troubles me that we want to, acknowledge Aboriginal culture and their elders,
0: but we're cancelling our own heritage and our own tradition. Outstanding point. Outstanding point. When people talk about the decline in religion, do you think they understand that this is not just about religion? It's not just about going to church or religious schools. There are hospitals underpinned by religion, aged care facilities, charities, social welfare organisations. Many of them enjoy tax exemption, but... It's not valid or is it invalid to argue that without such Christian bodies, I'm thinking of St Vincent de Paul, St Vincent's Hospitals, any number of aged care entities, Australia's social, health and educational fabric would collapse.
1: It would collapse and I've uh, read some reports where when you look at education, health, social welfare, up to 50% of that, uh, those organisations are Christian, either managed or inspired. Definitely. And you know, the old furphy, the teacher union, always bangs on about uh, Catholic schools costing too much. But the reality is, as you well know, parents who send their children to yes. Catholic schools are paying for the government system Quite. as well as the Catholic My system. My word. They're saving the tax they're subsidising
0: the government. The government could never afford to educate all those people if you closed every one of those schools. Just coming back to a point you just made, which was made by the former Deputy Prime Minister John Anderson, who splendidly argues that our political and legal systems, much of our music, literature and art, is deeply imbued with Christian beliefs. Just amplify that point to our viewers. Kevin? That's
1: a very good point, and uh, people don't really understand or know that J.R. Tolkien, who obviously did uh, Lord of the Rings, and that was uh, a, a global success, the movie, he talks about that uh, trilogy as being underpinned by Christian ethics, Christian beliefs, virtues. Similarly, The line The Witch in the Wardrobe, I mean, if you look at that children's story, again, good and evil, concepts about uh, courage, about faith, about... Uh, doing what is best for others, they're all Christian, yes. inherently yeah. Christian values yeah. and ethics.
0: Yeah, I mean, things and, like, uh, things like, like liberty that. and freedom and social justice, how we should treat one another, these are Christian in origin, aren't they?
1: They are. And the other point here, Alan, you mentioned the uh, census. It shocked me that the most uh, common illness relates to mental health. Mm. And as you know, uh It's a personal uh, matter, but we lost our son, James, in a hit-and-run accident 20 years ago this uh, last week. And we turned to many things, but religion was vital. If you don't have a sense of, uh, you know, of something higher, something comforting, something reassuring in terms of, uh, well, it gave us a spiritual sense of uh, God's plan, The reason why so many people, I'd argue, are turning to drugs or sexting or that their mental illness is such a great issue, so prevalent, is because we've denied that Christian sense of
0: spirituality, of transcendence. Just one final thing before we go. I'm just listening to what you're saying there. So when you talk about alcoholism and depression and anxiety and suicide and drugs and so on, just briefly say to our viewers, Uh, explain to our viewers, how can religion offer reassurance and comfort?
1: It's it's a very uh, profound question, but uh, in a book I wrote uh, about this, uh, Taming the Black Dog, I talk about literature, and you'd appreciate that, teaching resilience, courage, overcoming adversity, Mm. stories like the the Odyssey. But I also talked about religion. And one uh, Christian mystic, Julian of Norwich, she talks about having faith in something higher, more divine. Yes, let nothing disturb
0: you, let nothing frighten you. Everything passes away except God. Does that apply to people who are suffering anxiety from big uh, electricity bills, the worry that their children are not being taught things at school that they should be taught? that they're being indoctrinated, that their weekly take-home pay is not enough to pay the bills. How does religion help them through those crises? The other quote there, uh, my wife uh, often quotes this as well, is that
1: Julian of Norwich argues, all shall be well, all shall be well, all manner of things shall be well. And it's interesting, T.S. Eliot uses that quote in one of his poems. So if you're alone, solitary, you have nothing to draw on, in terms of giving you a sense of faith, of uh, having the courage to endure, to find uh, that sense of spiritual wholeness, then that's why people, I think, turn to alcohol or to drugs. Mm. And that's why mental illness is so prevalent in
0: society. I think this- Uh, And that's the issue. Yeah, I think this needs wider discussion. It's good to talk to you. We always run out of time, but we must talk again. I just think when we're sick of saying some of these things, other people who are in desperate need may begin to hear them. So thank you for your time, Dr Donnelly. And just reminding you all that text that he has compiled, it's an anthology of essays, really. There it is on your screen. Christianity Matters in These Troubled Times. Dr Donnelly, very grateful. All the best. My pleasure, Alan. There is Dr Kevin Donnelly. All of us at some time or other have walked out of a well-lit room into a dark night. You immediately experience the sensation that you've got no idea where you are. I have to say that's how many of us feel about what is becoming the very dangerous formulation of energy policy in this country. Earlier this month, the Origin Energy Chief Executive, Frank Calabria, told us that if we are to meet the 2050 net zero target, it would cost us in new investment, you ready? $176 trillion. I venture to say he'd know more about this than Chris Bowen, or Anthony Albanese, let alone some bureaucrat or a clutch of them in Canberra. He said that between now and 2050, there would be a tripling of demand for electricity and storage because Bowen and Albanese and co want to get rid of coal-fired power. Storage would need to grow by a factor of 170, and there would need to be an eight-fold growth in renewables. Then if that were to happen, you've got to get the energy into the grid. Mr. Calabria said additional transmission infrastructure would be essential, an understatement, I would have thought, with domestic investment in that estimated at another $70 billion. Mr. Calabria issued a further warning that with renewables and transmission, there is a risk, of course, that projects will take longer and cost more, and those costs will be borne by customers on their bills. Now, remember my analogy about walking out of the well-lit room into a dark night? This is where we are on Labor's energy policy. We don't know where we will finish up. The Origin Energy Chief Executive, Frank Calabria, pointed us in the right direction when he said, it is an heroic assumption that electricity prices will fall. Indeed, he said it's also an heroic assumption that we'll have the electricity we need. Mr Calabria went further when he argued that it was an even bigger leap of faith that all of the unintended consequences that will result from such an endeavour, that is net zero by 2050, owes more to hope than engineering. Parallel to this renewable nonsense is the correct argument that Australia can't hit net zero by 2050 without a policy for the transport sector. The transport sector represents 18% of these much despised emissions. So the transport sector will have to be attacked in order to address net zero even though the politicians who proclaim this truth are flying around the world in planes that emit the very gases that they seek to demonise. Back to Frank Calabria. Because trials conducted by Origin Energy, he's the chief executive, have found that if Australians start buying electric vehicles in big numbers, and it's clear the Albanese government will spend any amount of your money, even billions, making the purchase of electric vehicles easier, the aim being that cars like yours Fueled by petrol and diesel, won't be on the road after 2050. There have been no studies demonstrating the financial impacts of this kind of policy, but that's where we're heading. But back to Frank Calabria, whose Origin Energy has conducted trials, which have found that if Australians start buying electric vehicles in big numbers, the power grid will come under enormous stress, with electric vehicles potentially increasing demand by between 30 and 100%. And if this additional load is added to the grid during peak evening periods, the effects could be disastrous because researchers found that 30% of electric vehicle charging is done in the peak period, between 3pm and 9pm. So is Big Brother going to demand we buy the electric vehicle and further demand when we can and cannot charge it? The official view is that if the electric vehicle charging is done between 3pm and 9pm, the distribution system won't be able to cope. So what do Bowen and co. tell us? According to Bowen, quote, Australian homes and businesses are desperate to get their hands on electric vehicles and slash their transport bills. As they say in the movie, The Castle, he's dreaming. Coal still produces 60% of our demand. And at night time, when there's no sun and often no wind, the demand for coal-fired power is much higher. The Origin Energy Chief Executive, Frank Calabria, hit us between the eyes. $176 trillion will need to be invested to reach net zero in 28 years' time. What happens in between is, as I said at the outset, like going from a well-lit room into a dark night, the battle for common sense on this issue must continue. Well, let's bring in, as we do every Tuesday, the splendidly informed former executive assistant to the former American president, Ronald Reagan, Peggy Grandy. Peggy, lovely to have you again. Um, what on earth are Americans making of this meeting between Joe Biden and Saudi Prince, Prince Mohammed bin Salman? Um, just for our viewers, after the murder of the journalist Jamal Khashoggi, President Biden promised to make the kingdom of Saudi Arabia a pariah. The kingdom has failed to release the former Crown Prince Mohammed bin Nayef, who was honoured by Donald Trump for his cooperation in the fight against Al Qaeda. There are other leaders under arrest, including the king's brother. (laughs) Others are in exile. So President Biden said after he met, met Prince Mohammed bin Salman, Saudi Arabia's de facto ruler on Friday, President Biden insisted. He pointedly blamed him for the murder of journalist Khashoggi. Peggy, I don't think anyone believes that happened, do they?
2: Well, thank you, Ellen, as always, for having me on. I think the trip can be summed up by calling it the fist bump that was heard around the world. And whether it's the he said, she said, of whether he did or didn't say this, it was embarrassing in the first place that Joe Biden went with hat in hand, basically to beg for oil from somebody he had called a pariah nation. Now, that being said, I think this trip, in spite of, not because of Joe Biden, maybe ended better than it could have in the sense that I think labeling Saudi Arabia as a pariah nation really boxes them into a corner, and prevents any opportunity for us to move positively forward. Historically, the Middle East relationship with the US has been defined by oil, and by terrorism. And Donald Trump really changed that into a scenario where there was cooperation, economic prosperity, and some semblance of peace. But Joe Biden is determined to undo everything Donald Trump did, which is why we see him going back into the Iran deal and just undoing everything Trump did. And it's leading to a dangerous place. And so, maybe in the end, this was the best result we could have expected from this president.
0: Yeah, I mean, Peggy, I don't think Biden And you've heard me before and you before on this, I don't think he knows what he's saying. But just revisiting this point, he told the press that he accused uh, the Crown Prince of the murder of the journalist, the Washington Post journalist Khashoggi. Biden told reporters, quote, this is Biden. He basically said he was not personally responsible for it. And Biden said, I indicated that I thought he was. And now, Peggy, Saudi officials who were present for the encounter said that didn't happen. Just before you, uh, you, I hear from you, I should tell our viewers, the CIA had alleged in 2018 that the Crown Prince had ordered the operation that killed Khashoggi, a US resident, as I said, a columnist for the Washington Post. So Peggy, was Biden having promised to make Saudi Arabia a pariah, publicly promoting how tough he was to try to defuse some of the criticism for abandoning his campaign to make Saudi Arabia a pariah.
2: Well, unfortunately, nobody knows what to believe from Joe Biden. And I don't know that anybody believes anything he says. So. Either he's telling the truth, which means he's accusing the Saudis of lying, or he's lying, or he doesn't remember. And two (laughs) out of the three of those are pretty scary. And this is not the first time we have seen this. And the American people don't have trust in this administration or in this president. And it's for instances like this, because how publicly humiliating is it for after an international summit like this, for the other side to come out and say, that's not what happened. It's humiliating. It was embarrassing he had to go in the first place, but this is on him. He chose to go hat in hand and he came back humiliated.
0: Absolutely. And, and you saw those, saw those pictures. Saudi newspapers showed those images of the two bumping fists. There they are. Now, Macron had traveled there in December, Boris Johnson in March. Biden, though, Peggy, is given to embellishment. Now, I get the impression he's big noting himself because Biden does have a reputation for embellishment. He met Vladimir Putin in 2011 when he was vice president, says he told Putin, I'm looking into your eyes and I don't think you have a soul. But others present have no memory of the exchange. Then Biden described a confrontation with the Serbian nationalist leader Slobodan Milosevic. Biden was then a senator and he reckoned, he told Milosevic, I think you're a damn war criminal and you should be tried as one. But others in the room later said they didn't recall the line. So, Peggy, you make that point just a couple of minutes ago. Someone's not telling the truth. Many suspect it's Biden or else, as you say, he's so cognitively deficient, he doesn't actually remember what took place.
2: Yeah. Well, he has this um, penchant for telling big stories after the fact. And I think in the moment, he's actually not saying those things. And afterwards, he's just all talk with big bravado, like you said, saying, oh, yeah, I really told it to him. But when you have reliable sources saying that's not the case, then it's really hard to know what to believe. And it's scary that we can't believe this American president. Mm. You know, He's pursuing an ideology of foolishness. The United States has more oil than the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. And yet he goes over and begs for it like we need it. We've got states all over the United States begging him to let them drill. So he can tell all the stories he wants. The American people know the truth and they don't think Joe Biden is telling it to them.
0: Now, Peggy, he went over there begging the Saudis to release more oil, came back with no commitment. So in other words, the trip achieved nothing in that regard, did it?
2: Well, he came back with a little nod toward what he had asked for. They agreed to increase production from 10 million barrels per day to 13 million barrels per day. And so I guess he could say he came back with something. But the Saudis really won on principle, the fact he had to go and ask at all.
0: Yes, that's right. Let's go to domestically, things domestically. Crime. How soft are the Democrats proving themselves to be on crime, especially district attorneys and attorneys general?
2: Well, this is um, a terrible stain on our nation to allow utter lawlessness and to have it be encouraged by the Democrat Party. You know, Donald Trump was accused of losing white suburban female voters in droves. And because of this issue alone, they are running back to the Republican Party. We've got utter lawlessness, especially in our big cities, these big Democrat-run cities all across the nation. And it's because there is this soft-on-crime policy from candidates from elected officials and especially from our attorneys general and district attorneys, like you said. And it is an embarrassment to this nation that we're allowing such criminal activity to occur. So
0: shoplifting under $980 isn't considered a crime. Did a bloke steer his car into a woman and her baby in a stroller but was released immediately? This can't be true, surely.
2: Unfortunately, it is, and I could go on and on. In fact, this weekend, a famous NASCAR driver was stabbed in a gas station by somebody who was out on parole and had a warrant out for his arrest. So it is this revolving door of criminals going into the, the, the jail or the court system and coming right out. You know, I don't believe that the criminals should be back on the streets before the victims are out of the hospital, and that's what we see happening time and time again.
0: Are you saying that Starbucks... Walgreens and other stores are closing due to theft and crime.
2: Absolutely, and people are getting really afraid here. They're afraid to walk the streets. They're afraid to ride mass transit. They're afraid to that they might be followed home. They're afraid to go shopping because they're afraid that they're gonna pump their gas and be stabbed like that NASCAR driver. I mean, there really is this palpable fear. And our criminals aren't afraid of anything because they know that they will be released. They talked about a guy this past week who had been arrested over 120 times in the last several months all on shoplifting charges, but it doesn't stop with shoplifting and they become more and more brazen and there's this escalation of crime that occurs and people are really afraid because they don't feel the justice system has their back, but the justice system is on the side of the criminals.
0: Absolutely. Now, is it a fact that people are being pushed onto train tracks, uh, that there are unprovoked attacks on the street, that home invasions are on the rise? So basically the system is working against Americans, not for them.
2: Absolutely, and you know, there used to be a day where you walk past the homeless on the street and you just kind of felt sorry for them. Now even the homeless have become very violent and are involved in things like pushing people onto the train tracks. Stabbing,s um, following people home. I mean, there really is a culture of violence, even in Los Angeles. This is crazy. You haven't heard about this since the times of the Wild Wild West. But train robberies are up in Los Angeles, where there's just miss. utter lawlessness. They're mm-hmm. opening up these train cars and looting them. So yeah. these are things we haven't heard about for a long time. These are all big blue cities, and voters are tired of it. They're recalling these DAs and um, doing it one at a time. They just got rid of the Definitely. one in San Francisco, and Los Angeles is counting signatures right
0: now. Well, vote Democrat, defund the police. And this is what you get just before you go. How angry are people about the southern border being open and millions of people, no one's got any idea who they are, being dropped all over the country, human trafficking, drug trafficking, out of control? What's the administration doing?
2: Well, the administration is encouraging this. This is an incidental. This is intentional. And the American people are furious about it. The property, the drug trafficking, the crime, the violence all along the border, and it's filtering all across the nation. This is not who we are as a nation. And, you know, Joe Biden should be listening not only to the anger, but watching the poll numbers, and that should be making decisions for him. He should realize this is not popular. He knows that most of these people that come across the border will never be returned home. He's counting on them becoming Democratic voters, but if he watches his sinking poll numbers with Hispanics, he better not count on that for long. And it's an insult to anybody who's Hispanic to think that they're okay with crime, they're okay with drug trafficking, they're okay with human trafficking and okay with lawlessness. That's not anything that the Hispanic community or anybody else in America supports. And so Joe Biden is on the wrong side of this. And he's changing the face of our nation without our consent. Uh, People don't like it.
0: But but Peggy, I don't think Joe Biden's on any side. He's just in total cognitive decline. And the sooner someone nails it as such, the better it will be for all Americans. Great to talk to you, Peggy. And we'll talk again next week. There she is, Peggy Grandy. Lovely, Lovely to get her insights, isn't it? But what a sad picture. But... But people like Peggy and I warned about this, vote Democrat, that's fine, defund the police, that's fine, and this is what you'll get, and you end up getting what you voted for. All right, we'll talk about more of that next week. There's an interesting sideline story to the extraordinary struggle currently going on within Britain's Conservative Party to find someone to replace Boris Johnson. Many are arguing that as each candidate, <laughs> candidate attacks the other, damage is being done to the body politic. Nonetheless, contests such as we are currently witnessing allow proper scrutiny of candidates, what they represent and what they offer. We don't have that here in either the Labor Party or the Liberal Party. Many would say that two of the front runners in the contest, Rishi Sunak and Liz Truss, have come under real pressure, as front runners should, pressure the like of which they weren't really ready for. Perhaps the most provocative question was when Rishi Sunak got personal and asked asked Liz Truss bidding for the Conservative leadership about her having been a Remainer and a Liberal Democrat. All that aside, one interesting question has emerged to which the respected columnist Charles Moore has drawn our attention, the future career of Boris Johnson. I'll have something to say in a moment about the possible future career of Scott Morrison. Charles Moore reminds us that Boris Johnson was born in New York, so he therefore could become President of the United States. According to the US Constitution, which has not changed in this regard since its launch in 1789, anyone can become President so long as he is, quote, a natural-born citizen of that country, is over 35 years of age and has been a resident for 14 years, unquote. As Charles Moore points out, Boris qualifies by birth and age, He was a dual UK-US citizen, but in 2016, perhaps in pursuit of his British political career, he renounced his American citizenship. Some argue that once relinquished, US citizenship can't be regained. But it's also argued that a former citizen can apply for US citizenship in the way that all other non-American citizens do, getting their green card. So it doesn't seem for Boris impossible, given Boris's capacity to usually get what he wants. Those who know Boris Johnson say he could surely find a way around all of this, though he has nowhere near reached the 14 years residence required, having only been a resident for a few months when he was a baby, and then three years later when his father worked in Washington and New York. So he'd have 10 years to make up. Charles Moore amusingly suggests that Boris could become an American TV star, become a full US citizen before he's 70, he's currently 58 which would make him younger than either Donald Trump or Joe Biden. But those who know Boris Johnson say he may not be finished yet with the British prime ministership. There are many voters in Britain and members of the Conservative Party in government who are experiencing buyer's remorse. The spirited and often personal debate between the candidates wanting to replace him have revealed significant and perhaps damaging weaknesses, which has prompted many to ask what the hell has the Conservative Party at Westminster, not in the electorate, I might add, done to a bloke who won a general election three years ago with a massive 80-seat majority, took Britain out of the EU, managed coronavirus, but had some parties he shouldn't have had, and every now and then fiddled with the truth, albeit almost always in a good-humoured way. It seems there are many, having voted no confidence, but have heard the wrangling amongst the other candidates, who are now wondering whether a Boris com- comeback may not be too far away. Well, there's no likelihood of that for Scott Morrison, with the primary vote swing against him on the May 21 election of 8.2%. Indeed, we can expect the federal seat of Cook, Scott Morrison's seat, to be vacant soon, and a mad factional squabble will ensue will ensure to win pre-selection. But unlike the British system, there'll be no debate at all about the merits or otherwise of potential candidates. Indeed, merit will be the first casualty. But it prompts the question, is Scott Morrison going to join the Pentecostal speaking circuit? Apparently, big money can be made. It is true that behind the scenes, in the shambles in relation to pre-selection that ensued in New South Wales up to the May 21 election, the then Prime Minister was scrambling to secure the endorsement of some of his Pentecostal friends. That being unsuccessful, he's now graduated to the pulpit. Nothing wrong with that. Rather, it is what he said in a sermon at the weekend to Perth's Victory Life Centre, run by that magnificent tennis player, remarkable human being, and extraordinary charity worker, Margaret Court. The former Prime Minister encouraged the congregation to put their faith in God rather than government because, quote, we don't trust in governments fresh from an election campaign in which he was seeking from the electorate precisely that trust. He went further, quote, as someone who's been in it, if you're putting your faith in those things, you are making a mistake, unquote. Well, instead of telling the congregation that, quote, we don't trust in governments, Mr Morrison should have been telling them that we should be able to trust our governments. After all, they're our representatives. But in the sanctity of Perth's Victory Life Centre, Scott Morrison should have been asking for forgiveness for the fact that as the leader of a government, he broke that trust. Look, before I go, this Prince Harry is as annoying as a fly on a hot day. Will you just go away? Overnight, he delivered a keynote speech to the United Nations in New York to virtually an empty room. Don't you just love how the UN allow these superficial celebrities to speak? What do they know? Nothing. But the guidelines for UN speech are simple. Tell everyone how catastrophic climate change is and that the world will end in 10 years' time. Blame it on Donald Trump and call every man a sexist. That's how low the threshold is. Anyhow, Prince Harry, accompanied by the insufferable Meghan Markle, was there to observe Mandela Day a celebration of the life of Nelson Mandela. Harry began his speech by comparing the US government with Russia invading Ukraine as part of, quote, a global assault on democracy and freedom. He opined that the US was responsible for, quote, rolling back the constitutional rights, referring to the legal decision on the Roe v. Wade abortion precedent set by the Supreme Court, a co-equal branch of the US government alongside the White House and Congress. What do they say? There's one born every minute. The woke Prince Harry went on, quote, this has been a painful year in a painful decade. We're living through a pandemic that continues to ravage communities in every corner of the globe. Climate change wreaking havoc on our planet with the most vulnerable suffering most of all. And then this, the few, Weaponizing lies and disinformation at the expense of the many, he continued. And from the horrific war in Ukraine to the rolling back of constitutional rights in the United States, he said, we're witnessing a global assault on democracy and freedom, the cause of Mandela's life, unquote. Honestly, Prince Harry is the mouse that roars, unwanted and booed in his own country. The only place that will accept his ignorant viewpoints is the United Nations a network of globalists who bask in woke culture, invest in green energy, which we subsidise, and fly private jets to Davos and laugh at the rest of us while sipping from champagne flutes. In the UK, Eamon Holmes and Isabel Webster on GB News blasted Prince Harry for being hypocritical, citing that for someone who loves to lecture on climate change, he flies around in a private jet. Webster said, quote, That's just not unique to him. His father also uses a private jet. His brother uses a private jet. And they lauded and celebrated for their green outlooks, unquote. Spot on. The Spectator in America have rightly assumed that this speech with Markle approvingly looking on and clapping at every point, you ready for it? Was one step closer to Markle positioning herself as a potential successor to Joe Biden what a disaster that would be to even consider it for the Democratic Party. Prince Harry is the puppet of Meghan Markle and modern day Wallace Simpson. And these two are overpaid nobodies doing non-jobs. During these tough times of economic and geopolitical uncertainty, we can all do without the lectures from them. Well, now that's it for me. Look, I'm heading to Queensland for the next few days for some commitments up there but continue to tune in as the intelligent and very articulate Fred Paul will fill in for me. You'll enjoy him. Stream TV at 8pm tomorrow night for more common sense views and news in analysis. But for now, until next time, which will be soon, good night.